love and life. I mean, think about it. The ocean is our mother and our source, and she's the water we drink, the air we breathe, fear, joy, wonder, everything that we feel. And we tend to look at the surface of the ocean, but there is so much going on underneath. We feel very emotional about the oceans because they're so vast, there's so much we don't know about them. They, we, we love the ocean in a way that um, is really difficult to explain. The oceans are the source of all life on Earth, including humanity. And all of life depends on the global services that the ocean provides. In a very real sense, the global ocean is the heart and lungs of our planet. And as goes the health of the ocean, so goes the well-being of Earth's inhabitants. Though the ocean seems immense and immutable, the more we learn, the more we understand its vulnerabilities and how dramatically our actions are changing it. Today, we explore our profound connection to the ocean, the threats it faces from human activity, and how we might begin to address some of these critical issues. In today's episode, Turning the Tides, Ocean Biodiversity, Ecocide Law, and Healing Our Relationship to the Blue Heart of the Planet. We're your hosts, Eric Aris and Donna Grace Campbell. If you think of a lush rainforest or a lush terrestrial landscape, um, that is also in our oceans, except it's out of sight. So we don't necessarily think of the ocean uh, beyond being a sort of a blue horizon, a place where we might get our seafood from and a place that we might use uh, for recreation. But in fact, the, the biodiversity in the ocean is, is extremely rich um, and diverse. And that's what makes it so important to us as well. Uh, because, you know, we, we derive more than half of the oxygen that we breathe from the ocean and we get our jobs from the ocean and we get so many services from the ocean. Um, and that is because there is such a diversity of life in the ocean. It's only a healthy ocean that provides us with these services. So my name is uh, Farah Obaidila and I'm an, a longtime ocean advocate and I'm also the founder of Women for Oceans. And Women for Oceans is a uh, an advocacy group, ocean advocacy group. We work on a range of issues from overfishing to pollution and now um, also the emerging threat of deep sea mining. Women for Oceans' mission is to secure healthy oceans for the sake of human survival and human well-being, and as a moral duty to all living beings. They believe that in order to accelerate ocean solutions, the diversity of people working around the world for oceans must be promoted. In particular, Women for Oceans connects and amplifies the work of women around the world. So I asked Farah about biodiversity in the ocean. And to, to answer your question, how many species there are in the ocean, I don't think that anybody has an actual answer to that. And, and we know that there could be millions of different species in the deep sea, for example, but we haven't yet explored it. Um, it's, we, we know more, as they say, we know more about the, the surface of Mars than we do the deep ocean. And, and that's because it is so difficult to access. And only recently has the technology sort of developed 
well enough for us to to start exploring the deep sea in more detail. If you just think about it, that um, the ocean, of course, is absorbing, well, it produces every second breath we take comes from the ocean. Okay, so that's, uh, we're losing 50% of our oxygen at this rate. Um, overheating, so we know that the excess uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions are absorbed by our ocean, and thank God it's there. So my name is Antoinette Vermilia. I'm the co-founder of the Gallifrey Foundation. It is an organization that um, is considered venture philanthropy, and that basically focuses on marine conservation issues. So just showing you how important the ocean is as uh, absorbing our excess heat, the impacts of that are that when the ocean warms, it starts to lose oxygen. And when it starts to lose oxygen, that starts to have effects on parts of the ocean. Um, fishes can't live in it because they're used to a level of oxygen in the water, so they start to um, basically asphyxiate. The other thing that this happens, this starts to create more acidification. Now, the interesting thing about acidification, the ocean comprises different currents. And we always think of currents going from left to right, north to south, you know, wherever. But what we don't realize is there's this whole vertical column as well of movement that brings cool water up to the surface, sends uh, warm water down. And that is almost a diurnal uh, process with microfauna uh, in the waters that churn this up but many of them are calcium carbonate based. So if you have excess, um, if you have excess uh, uh, acidification, what happens? They, they start to fizzle and that's exactly what is happening. We are losing, apparently at the current rate, it's 1% per year over the last 40 years, 50 years. So you've got overheating, deoxygenation, acidification. And then let's add to that, uh, the two other areas, which is plastic and chemical pollution, and then over-extraction, which is either um, overfishing and in unsustainable um, manners and deep-sea bed mining, which is the other form of extraction. Antoinette has just described some of the essential interactions within the oceanic sphere. Here are a few more astounding facts. The ocean covers 70% of the surface of our planet. The ocean is home to 94% of all life on Earth. The ocean is home to the world's largest living structure. The ocean provides more than half of the oxygen we breathe. And perhaps most critical, it regulates the Earth's climate by acting as a global climate control system. It regulates the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere by absorbing, storing, and releasing the greenhouse gas into a variety of ways and places, thereby affecting the Earth's climate. These incredible and complex systems are now being thrown out of balance by human activity. The biggest threats to the oceans uh, today are climate change, uh, obviously, the, the climate is warming and uh, and changing, and this means that the chemistry in, in the ocean is changing. We're seeing 
um, the, the ocean acidifying, for example, uh, we're seeing the oceans warming and we're also seeing a reduction in the uh, oxygen content of the ocean. And all of this is having deleterious effects on life in the ocean. It's basically killing the ocean. Uh, the ocean has taken millions, if not billions of years to reach a fine balance uh, in terms of ocean chemistry. And that is being rapidly um, uh, destroyed by what we're doing to our to our Earth's climate through the continued release of fossil fuels. So that's the biggest threat, um, you know, because if, if, if we keep uh, assaulting or changing the, uh, the chemistry of the ocean, then we're basically going to kill life in the ocean. And that means that we're going to reduce or completely destroy its ability to sustain life on Earth. Climate change is causing ecocide in the ocean. Uh, the other threat, which is often not spoken about, is uh, overfishing. Uh, we are taking way too much biomass out of the ocean than the ocean can replenish. Um, so even by the UN's own estimates, 90% uh, of global fish stocks are either fully fished or overfished. Um, and, you know, this is a very brutal industry. It's not like this romantic image of fishermen going out to sea with their with their um, fishing rod and catching dinner for, you know, for tonight for their family. No, this is on an industrial scale. Uh, again, this is ecocide where we're literally destroying uh, life, living beings in the ocean, whether that's in the midwater column um, or whether that's on the ocean uh, on the ocean floor. Uh, with you know, with the heavy uh, trawl nets, uh, uh, that bottom trawl to sea floor. So overfishing is another um, big uh, assault to the ocean uh, that is happening. And I think most people don't know that that one in five fish is actually caught illegally. So aside from destructive fishing, which is legal, which is allowed, uh, we're also um, there's a lot of criminality happening at sea where you know just the laws are not being followed and and. But that's the problem. There is no accountability at sea because it happens far, you know, out of sight, out of mind, often in the high seas, which don't belong to any national uh, jurisdiction. Um, so, so yeah, there's, 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 there's no accountability, no enforcement, or, or very little to speak of. And then, of course, there's pollution, which you know, it's uh, which most people are more familiar with. Um, we, we, we dump an estimated 10 million tons of plastic into our oceans every year. So that's having enormous effect on, on life in the ocean. That's also killing life in the ocean. So that, none of that uh, bodes well for the future of the ocean and its ability to carry out the, the functions that sustain life on Earth. But on top of that, there's now this emerging threat, uh, which is deep sea mining, which is basically where we're going to strip mine the seafloor in order to extract minerals from the deep ocean. Um, and for me, this is probably the most explicit example of ecocide happening in the ocean because we know before we begin that what we're going to do is going to cause extensive irreversible damage to life in the ocean um it not just to uh, you know not just directly in terms of killing life uh, on the seafloor and in the water column but also in terms of of disturbing locked away carbon the ocean is the world's largest carbon sink, so it's going to exacerbate the, the problems we already have. But don't we need deep sea mining to help us transition to the new green economy? That's what several companies are saying. Companies who are poised to begin deep sea mining activity. According to one of those companies, quote, 
Deep sea mining will enable the battery-powered shift to clean energy and electric vehicles with the lightest planetary touch, end quote. That's a false narrative, and the industry itself has acknowledged that there are enough minerals on land to meet the demand for the, for the energy transition. But there's three things to unpack here. First of all, uh, there's enough minerals on land to meet that demand. The industry says so. So that's number one. Uh, number two, we need to be moving away from this extractive take-make-break society anyway. We're, we've decided as a global community that we want to be more circular. And a report was recently released shows that, that we can uh, reduce our demand for uh, minerals by up to 58% if we were to go circular. If we get better at recovering metals from our waste stream. I mean, at the moment, if you think about all the gadgets that, that you know, from our laptops to our phones to our batteries, that all just gets either incinerated or, or landfilled or wherever. But there's so much to be recovered from those waste streams that could reduce our demand for, for virgin metals to begin with. The circular economy Fara is describing is a model of production and consumption which involves sharing, leasing, reusing, repairing, refurbishing, and recycling existing materials and products for as long as possible. And not enough investment has been going into that. I know that there's companies working on bio-leaching, for example, to recover metals. Uh, but anyway, that's the second thing to unpack there. But then the third thing, and that's something that um, many people you know, might not be aware of is that battery technology is, is uh, evolving very quickly. Uh, and, and we see that, for example, in, in the companies that are supporting a moratorium on deep sea mining, um, car, electric car companies, for example, energy companies, tech companies, they are all saying that they don't need those minerals from the deep sea because they are already changing their battery chemistry that then doesn't require the, the cobalt, nickel, um, manganese that these miners want to take from the deep sea. So if you take all those three, compo- uh, you know, those three aspects together, the changing technology, the need to move to a circular economy, um, and the fact that we, we can get our metals in a you know, much more efficient way uh, from the land, it refutes the argument that we need to go in six kilometers into the sea to, to extract these metals in such a violent manner. So with deep sea mining, it is difficult because it is so far out of sight and out of mind. It's again, it's not in anybody's backyard, but it is in our global commons, right? So it is in an area that belongs to all of us, that everybody has a right to, whether you live in, you know, the, the in, in a landlocked country or not. The high seas belong to all of us, and what happens there will affect all of us. And it's it's a difficult message for people to understand because they can't necessarily see it. Well, a study has shown that aside from the sediment plumes, which will suffocate and disturb, you know, light penetrating the ocean and everything else, there's also noise pollution, right? And that is going to be so significant that it will affect whales and dolphins in an area of the size. So if all the mining licenses were to go ahead, so right now there's about 30, 31 exploration licenses, if all of those were transferred into exploitation licenses, and if they were all operating, you know, 24-7, which would be the plan for any of these mining operations, then it would impact in terms of noise pollution and in terms of a threshold beyond which is comfortable for whales and dolphins, an area that flies 10 times the front. I mean, that is insane. I mean, if you mine on land, it is quite, again, I'm not defending the way we mine on land, because that in itself has 
is rife with issues. But it is quite a discrete area, right? And in the ocean, because noise travels far, because currents are happening, carrying noise and sediments, the impact is far greater than the, than the, than the area that's being mined itself. The fishing industry uh, is, is very concerned, deeply concerned about deep sea mining because it will impact their bottom line as well. Um, and I'm not just talking about the sort of small scale fishermen which will be impacted, but the industrial scale fisheries that they will be impacted. Many global fisheries associations have come out already to say no to deep sea mining. Who is speaking against deep sea mining? At COP27, France's President Macron openly called for a moratorium on deep-sea mining. Others calling for a moratorium are Google, BMW, Samsung, Volvo, Volkswagen, Renault Group, Patagonia. Financial institutions include Tridos, Swiss Banking Globalance, Investment Management Goodlander, over 700 scientists, and nearly half a million global citizens. Obviously, there is huge and growing opposition to deep-sea mining from many sectors. However, the problem with imposing an outright moratorium or ban is the tangled web, or outright lack, of ocean law and regulation. Antoinette Familiar. So you basically, if I were to describe it, you have um, the high seas, which are all the areas in the middle, all around the big oceans, but every country or every island has a like a 200 nautical mile radius around it, which is their national waters. OK, so let's start off with the open ocean, which is governed under a U.N. law called the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. So that applies to the ocean, but it doesn't apply to the seabed. That is the International Seabed Authority. And then you have all the EEZs, which are the standard economic zones, which are basically that 200 nautical miles out from each country. So those are governed by that country. Then you have um, RFMOs, sorry, lots of acronyms, which are regional fisheries management organizations, which have their collectives of groups of countries that have said, we're going to manage this area. And so they've agreed how they're going to manage the area. But it's got a boundary, which, of course, if you're a fish, you're totally aware of. Um, or you have um, moratoriums on certain areas where you can fish or you have certain species that you can fish at a certain time. Okay. Bar all of that, okay, that confusing little spaghetti of all these different laws and applications, then my next image is a colander. And a colander is, as you know, it's a container where you're meant to rinse your spaghetti and it's got lots of holes in it. And that's the problem at the moment. That problem has led to poor protection for many parts of the ocean and the need for legal intervention. In one example, the Guillory Foundation took protective action against the Argentinian government through a lawsuit based on one of their constitutional tenets, the right to a sustainable living. And on that basis, we sued the Argentine government, um, telling them that they were not doing enough to care for um, the oceans to afford a right to sustainable living for their people. The key point of this is to change the current paradigms of doing business. 
18 months later, um, the Argentine Navy now has four more patrol boats in which to be able to actually patrol its waters and prevent um, illegal fishing off its borders. There was a government election last year, and this was one of the, the tickets that people were riding on, sort of saying the incumbent government is not doing enough for marine protection. So now we've ended up with a little bit better marine protection. Um, but the biggest change that happened was it, it ripples internationally into the waters. So it went to France, we got uh, reaction from them, we got reaction from the Spanish and, and the Chinese uh, fishing vessels actually changed their behavior. There were very few, if any, illegal incursions around the EEZs. And in fact, in many cases, actually spent more than 100 nautical miles away from the EEZ. Antoinette is speaking about governance in national waters. What isn't governed well at all are the high seas. Um, for example, the high seas that, um, that are largely, um, well, that are beyond, you know, beyond any national jurisdiction. If you think about it, how did that come to be? How did almost half of our planet be, uh, be lawless? I mean, the law of the sea only came into effect in the 1980s, and it leaves out 64% of the oceans, which translates to almost half our planet. So, and I, I wonder, well, how, how did that happen? And that's because we were only concerned, and this is, this is my opinion, right? It's a, but it's because we were only concerned with what the ocean can mean for, for me, for us as a sovereign state. So then all these national, these economic exclusive zones were you know, allocated to different coastal states, but it it left out the entire high seas, which then became a free for all. They're wild west, if you like. Um, and and I think if we had had more inclination to think about the collective value of the high seas or the innate value of the high seas, the future value of the high seas, undiscovered value of the high seas, whatever, you know, we would not have left it to to be so un- ungoverned as and now and now we don't know what to do because now we've got deep sea mining upon us and we don't actually know how to properly govern that in a way that is that is going to secure our heritage there or preserve the the, the ecosystems and, and and life in the high seas international recognition of ecocide will provide a much-needed framework to protect ocean wildlife and marine ecosystems from the worst harms. It will ensure that ocean regulation and protection are taken far more seriously at the highest level, driving better due diligence and stimulating strategic positive change. Also, that so there are two campaigns that I'm really interested in, and one is the to give the ocean its own rights, its rights of existence and protection, like a human right. And the counterbalance to that is ecocide law. So in that sense, those are very, very important tenants um, that would help protect the ocean in a way that right now the current systems have difficulty in doing. And a lot of that is because we're doing it from an anthropocentric way. We only look at how does it affect humans. So right now on the ocean, you can be finning uh, 250 million sharks a year up until recently there were no protections. Or I can literally empty the ocean of everything. I can bottom trawl, I can destroy coral systems that are thousands of years old. 
and there is nothing that at the moment can prevent me from doing so legally. So that is the point why ecocide law is essential. What we want to do is the network for um, Ocean for Ecocide Law is because it is really important and it will play a huge part in mitigating or deterring fishing, subsidized fishing, bottom trawling, deep sea bed mining, even shark finning. I cannot stop something, but I can make it so inefficient or so unwieldy or such a deterrent that it's no longer worth doing it. Eventually, it will be criminal, and that's when Stop Ecocide is accepted into the ICC. And this is why Ecocide, if it comes into law, I, I sincerely hope and actually trust that it will uh, with time because we can't afford not to recognize the destruction of our only planet uh, as not being a crime. Um, with all the knowledge that we have, once Ecosystem is adopted, as an international crime, it will be very powerful for the defenders of the ocean, for the people that care about the planet to to actually, you know, use that as, as leverage against those that want to mine the deep sea and say, hey, well, look, you know, if you if you go um, with this knowledge and destroy the deep sea for profit, uh, then know that, you know, you will be held uh, to account in a criminal court. And I think that's very powerful. And I think the sooner we get this law adopted as, as, um, as an international crime, the sooner we can we can start the journey towards recovery and restoring our relationship with the natural world. The consensus definition of ecocide is unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. I asked Farah, how would the impacts of deep sea mining be addressed by this definition? The a proposal or the idea from the industry, the mining industry, is to start mining in international waters. So this is, these are the high seas that are beyond the national jurisdiction of any one country. So they are in effect lawless. I mean, there are a patchwork of regulations around governance of high seas, but they are not comprehensive um, and they're not interlinked. And they're frankly out of date because they don't consider things like the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis. So I just I just want to mention that because that's a really important sort of framing of, of this issue, um, that there is no uh, you know system, like you say, no criminal or, uh, or accountability for what will essentially be a criminal act. Because as you, as you um, uh, read out the definition of ecocide, uh, this is deep sea mining is wanton. I mean, it is it is a deliberate act uh, that we know beforehand will cause irreversible damage. And unlike mining on land, um, mining in the deep sea cannot be audited in the same way as it can be on land. It cannot be regulated in the same way. N nobody has the means or the funding to go down four to six kilometers into the ocean, down into the ocean, and regulate what the mining industry is doing. So so there's a very big sort of uh, gaping hole in terms of, uh, you know, governance right there. Um, but also... You, you you spoke to that as well. Life in the deep ocean is so slow growing. I mean, there are fish down there that can live several hundred years old, um, that only reach maturity at about age 30 or you know more. Uh, there are corals that reach thousands of years old. So these are habitats that will not return uh, in in um, in human lifespan. So this is not an area that we can regenerate. Um, the nodules that they are seeking, these, these, these uh, mineral-rich nodules that sit on the seafloor, 
they are in fact millions of years old. So, and they provide essential habitat for life in the deep ocean. So if you take that away and, and they will be doing that using equipment and technology that is, uh, that is uh, very violent, essentially bulldozing the seafloor and then causing all the sediment plume into the water column, which then because of the slow nature of the deep sea with very you know, slow currents and, and heavy uh, you know, pressure because of all the water above it, everything moves slowly. So even the, the resettlement of sediment is going to take a long time um, but in that process, we'll be suffocating life, both in the water column as well as on the seafloor. And none of this is going to return or regenerate anytime soon. Because I really think uh, deep sea mining is the poster child, right? It is something that's not yet happening. And that, if we stop it, that also gives the world hope that, yeah, the global community can come together and stop a disaster from starting. You know, given all the division around the world, from everything, from, you know, race and, and pandemics and war and everything else, this could really be a unifier where we just say, okay, you know what, there is a line and we're not crossing it. And deep sea mining is just, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to go ahead with that. That would be ecocide. The Antarctic uh, Treaty, the um, peace treaty, that was an amazing accomplishment of global collaboration that I think would be great to be modeled, you know, for the high seas where it's kind of like, hey, this is, this is our area of peace. This is something that doesn't belong to any of us. So let's nurture it and care for it and preserve it and reap the benefits that come into national waters from a healthy high seas area. There are a lot of positive signs that industrial deep sea mining may not begin anytime soon. Along with intense pressure from civil society and the vast array of support for moratoriums mentioned earlier, the financial backing is looking shaky. In December 2022, the Nasdaq Stock Exchange issued a delisting notice to one of the most ardent corporate proponents. And earlier this week, Bloomberg reported that deep sea mining had lost its biggest corporate backer, Lockheed Martin. But the pressure cannot let up. There are many petitions to oppose deep-sea mining found online. Stopping this ecocide before it begins and addressing the ongoing threats to ocean health will be the first steps towards healing our relationship to the blue heart of the planet. Strong legal protection through ecocide law will help create a cultural shift in the human relationship with nature because it is through law that we create a common understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Today, we've heard from two ocean advocates, Antoinette Vermillier from the Gallifrey Foundation, found online at G-A-L-L-I-F-R-E-Y dot foundation. Antoinette is involved with the Oceans for Ecocide Law Network, which can be found on the stopecocide.earth website. And we heard from Farah Obaidala, founder and director of Women for Oceans, found at women number four, oceans.org. Farah is the editor of a new book called Oceans and Us, which brings together the expertise of over 35 ocean specialists from around the world with a view to empowering concerned citizens everywhere and can be found on their website. Podcast for the Planets is an exclusive production of Stop Ecocide International 
and can be found on most major podcast platforms or at stopecocide.earth backslash podcasts for the planet. Today's episode was written by Paul and Donna Grace Campbell. Music provided by the extraordinary Andy Squiff. His music can be found on Bandcamp at Squiff Eye. Our sound engineer and technical guru is Dave Ronald of All Ears Music Production in Weimar, British Columbia. We're your hosts, Eric Eris and Donna Grace Campbell, and we'll see you next time.